All right, good morning, Four Oaks. We don't know each other. I'm Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. There we go. We're out of Romans, never done with Romans, but for this season, we're picking up a new series, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, understand that not unusual on an Advent Sunday to open our Bibles to to Matthew or to, to Luke, right? This is a course where we find the birth narratives, the announcement of Jesus, the traditional Christmas stories. What will be unusual, as I mentioned, is that after Christmas, we're going to keep on going. We're going to keep on trucking through the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in that book for the next year or three or six, whichever comes first. You get what I'm saying? Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to introduce us to the book kind of generally, but specifically, I want us to see how the birth narratives in Matthew, how they function in light of this proclamation of the gospel. That Matthew is not meant to be read just the first two chapters at Advent season and then put away. Matthew is a, is a biopic. It's a proclamation of the euangelion, the good news. It's meant to be read as a, as a book, as a biopic, as to, get, to give us sort of the the totality of the vision of God and Jesus and his kingdom. Now, a lot of times we approach these first couple of chapters in Matthew, the ones about the wise men and um, the angels appearing and those sorts of things. Um, we, we approach these chapters at Advent season kind of like we, we do when we attend a high school or, or college reunion. And let me kind of explain this. Earlier this fall, me and some of my fellas um, college roommates, friends, uh, guys that were my wedding, we, we, we to, to, to use a Blues Brothers euphemism, we got the band back together, right? And, and it was a lot of remember this and remember that. And here's this picture that I took with my iPhone of a picture that was taken 35 years ago. And it seemed like we had, we, somebody had their boombox and we were continually playing Bruce Springsteen glory days on, on, on rewind after rewind. In other words, there was a lot, a lot of looking back. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing with the Advent narratives. They, let's be honest, they, they can be very nostalgic. They evoke lots of, of memories, um, um, events past in our childhood. They were a reminder of, of simpler times, right? But what we're going to see is that, that these narratives are far more than simply nostalgic journey into the past. In reality, these first chapters of Matthew are not so much meant to set our gaze backwards, but to set it forward as well. Now, of course, we do look to the past. We do look to that decisive moment in human history when Jesus died on a cross and in that process securing salvation for us. And so we absolutely look back to his death. We absolutely look back to his resurrection, that we, through his death, have been freed from the power of sin. He'd been given grace, forgiveness, eternal hope. Yet, let's be honest, and this is really impressed upon us at Advent season, isn't it? That even though all of those things are true for us, for what Christ has done for us in the past, Yet we look around, and let's be honest, the world is still a pretty broken place. We're broken. Our bodies are broken. Relationships are broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Suffering and sometimes death 
death of physical death, death of relationships, illnesses, prodigals, um, all of these divorces, political divides, all these things that we look around and say, Pastor Paul, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I, I, I know that Jesus has done these things for me, but I'll be honest, I'm just tired. I'm worn out. I'm exhausted. I just want Jesus to come and make these things right. So we look forward. We say, yes, Lord, you have come, but man, we are anxious for you to come again to set things right. That's why we pray, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And of all the gospels, I think it's Matthew's gospel that most poignantly shows us this reality of what happens when the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven comes crashing down into human history, into the kingdom of man. We are going to hear Matthew talk about how this changes everything. It vastly reorders our lives, our priorities, how we think about our present, how we think about our past, how we think about our future. It turns everything upside down, and it all starts here in this first chapter. Now, Matthew begins, drumroll please, this gospel with a genealogy. And, and sometimes when we think about genealogies, we think about that family reunion our parents made us go to, and somebody wrote on the dry erase board our family tree from the last 200 years, and, and we think boring, and we think irrelevant. And what I want, us to help, what I help, what I want to help us understand is this, is this is not the way this functions in Matthew. In Matthew, this is more along the lines of a grand pronouncement, that the opening words of this gospel are going to set the, the theme, the trajectory for the whole rest of the book. So, so next week, we are, we're going to read the whole genealogy this morning, but we're going to next week unpack it sort of in detail in terms of names, people, themes, those sorts of things. But this morning, we're going to talk about how this genealogy, genealogy serves as sort of a banner, a banner of hope a banner of trust, a banner of longing, a banner of anticipating to us as believers. And so we're going to be in the first 17 verses of this gospel, so I'm going to invite you to stand if you can, and we're going to read these things, attempt to read these names. I find the Semitic a little easier to pronounce than the Greek for some reason, but here we go. Begin in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abisha, and Abisha the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, 
and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abidud, and Abidud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of Old Testament history, your people were so many times confused. They were in doubt. They were in darkness. They wondered where their king was. They wondered when you were going to come and set things right. But little did they know, you, were, you had never stopped working. You had never stopped being sovereign. You were always in control. You were working out your plans and purposes. And I pray, Father, for the Four Oaks family this season, we would see the reality of the truth of the gospel promised, given to us in Christ. That we would see that you're not done with us, that you have not, for, you have not for, forgotten us, you've not forsaken us. Lord, that you are faithful and that we can indeed entrust ourselves to you. Lord, we ask that now you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Now, you, you need to know there is a, a Christian, you know, Christian musicians have written songs about all these narrative stories, but only one has written a song about Matthew 1, 1 through 17. That's Andrew Peterson. It's Matthew's genealogy. I requested it for Joe this morning, and he flatly refused, okay? So I don't know, but he's working on it, and he'll do a solo next week. I, I, just, just, just text him this, this week and ask him how, how that's going. We're actually going to camp out primarily in verse 1. Verse 1 gives us two lenses by which we're to look at this entire book. And again, verse 1 is the thesis. It's the topic sentence. It's, our, it's, it's Matthew's proposition. Everything he says builds upon this from this point forward. And here are the two lenses we're going to look at this verse through. Number one, we're going to look at the scribe. And two, the son. In other words, the man who wrote this book and the person he wrote it about. So let's look at the scribe first. Now, I remember the time a well-known Christian author, speaker, pastor came here to Four Oaks many, many moons ago, many years ago. And I remember people would line up and they wanted this person to sign their book. And, and this is, I love this person, by the way. Um, faithful, respected. People wanted him to sign a copy of one of his books, and I think he had written about 850 of them. So there was plenty to choose from. 
And but what was kind of strange, as he would sign books, is that instead of putting his signature, he kind of scribbled a line up and down, back and forth. It was really kind of bizarre, right? It was unintelligible. You could, it wasn't his name. You couldn't figure out exactly what it was. My initial impression was, well, that's, that's kind of rude, right? And I can't remember exactly what he said about this, but it was something along these lines. He said, you know, I'm just kind of pushing back against evangelical celebrity culture, right? Um, and fame. I, I, I want to make sure people know that, that my work, these books, my speaking, it's, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. I want him to be the hero. Um, and now, if you've had your book signed by an evangelical celebrity, God, God is gracious and will forgive you. Unless, he's, unless they signed your Bible, then I don't know about that one, right? That's a little different. But in a lot of ways, what we find here in Matthew is much the same thing. Let's be very clear, this biopic is not about Matthew. This is not a humble brag. This is not a platform to say, guess who I knew back in the day? Matthew is not the star. Matthew is not the hero. Jesus is. However, his name is lightly scribbled in the margins in various places if we look closely. Not because Matthew's trying to draw attention to himself, but it gives us clues that indeed Matthew did write this gospel. And you may say, Pastor Paul, is this, is this even relevant? It's super relevant. Because we accept the authority of Matthew based upon the fact that it was written by someone who lived, talked, breathed with Jesus. He was an eyewitness. He can account for these things. And if Matthew was just some compilation some via some Dan Brown conspiracy in the third century and a, and a group of a cabal came together and put together these obscure sayings and it was a power struggle and these sort of things. It undermines our confidence in the word of God. We have to remember, folks, that we believe in a religion of truth, of history, of eyewitnesses. These are not fairy tales. These are not Aesop's fables Poor Richard's Almanac, Greek mythology, things that are object lessons for us to gain insights for living. That, that's not what this is. It's not how it's presented. And so this is an important issue. Did, in fact, Matthew really write this thing? Let me just say this, and we could spend a lot of time on this. We'll spend just a little bit of time. It was pretty much the universal testimony of the early church that indeed Matthew the tax collector wrote this gospel. Matthew meaning Matthew, one of the 12 original disciples, one of the apostles was the author of this book. And I just, there's a lot of reasons we think that, but here's just two, all right, in brief. And again, I, I mention these things just so that you can continue to gain confidence that what we're studying is nothing less than the word of God. It is the inspired text of Scripture. Let me just mention two things. First of all, I, I did not actually know this until I started studying this book. Matthew was the most widely used and cited gospel during the first quarter um, of the millennium of the church. The first two or three hundred years, Matthew was the most used gospel. People cited it. It was circulating. And one of the things that that tells us is that right off the bat, no one um, had suspicions about the origins of this gospel. 
Matthew, as an eyewitness, an apostle, an apostle, his lineage was impeccable. He, his, his authority was unquestioned on these matters. It was understood by everyone and by the fact that, that there really was no debate about this, that, that this lent real affirmation that Matthew indeed wrote this. But there's a second reason, I think this is an even better reason, there are a couple of, shall we say, Easter eggs in Matthew. Now, now, what do we mean by Easter eggs? Sometimes a writer, an author, a filmmaker will insert little autobiographical notes in the film, right? That you can't find unless you're obsessive compulsive and get on YouTube and fast forward it in slow motion over and over again, right? They're, they're sort of the inside jokes or the, they, they're kind of markers of the creator. Now, Matthew doesn't leave these Easter eggs in his gospel intentionally, I think, in, in, in terms of saying something about himself, but they are there and they're important to note. So let me read Matthew 9, 9 through 10. This is Matthew recording his own conversion and calling, okay? It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, when you look at Luke and Mark's parallel accounts of this passage of Matthew's conversion, they refer to Matthew as Levi, not Matthew. Levi most likely was his tribal name, his official name, but Matthew was his given name, his familiar name. So, so when you introduce yourself, if, if the first time I introduce myself to you, hello, my name is Paul the Gilbert, all right? You would say, hello, I am out of here. Okay, like, like a little less definite article, please. Like, what is that about the guilt? What? Okay, we don't refer to ourselves that way. We refer ourselves in the first person. And again, Matt, there was no reason for Matthew to refer to him by himself in the third person as a surname. No, he refers himself as Matthew. Now, another clue, also in the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, it says that at this conversion, Jesus went and had a party, a dinner at Matthew's house, and that they invited all the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, and they specifically refer to it as Matthew's house. Well, Matthew doesn't call it Matthew's house. He calls it the house. So it's like you tell your kids, where are we going? We're going home, okay? You don't, re again, say, well, we're going to the Gilbert home. That's weird, right? You wouldn't say that. It's, it gives us an indication, right, that, that Matthew is already embedded in this story. Now, there's one other reference, and this one is in Matthew 10.3. You can flip over there. I don't have the verse on the screen. And, and Matthew lists out all the names of the disciples and the apostles. Interestingly, he refers to himself as Matthew, the tax collector, now, when you read Mark and Luke, they don't refer to Matthew as Matthew the tax collector, and for good reason. Those would have been fighting words, all right? That, that, that would have been a pejorative title. We're going to talk about the place that tax collectors played in that society, but it would have been like saying, Matthew the adulterer, Matthew the liar, Matthew, that's, that's not what Matthew, that, 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 that's not what they're doing because... When we become 
new creatures in Christ, church, we are given a new identity. And our culture, which is so obsessed with identity and who we are uniquely and independently of everything else, you need to understand that as a Christian, your most fundamental and important identity is that you are a new creature in Christ. And so what Matthew is doing, this is not the humble brag. What Matthew is saying is, this is who I was. Matthew the tax collector, the guy cheating and stealing and thieving from his fellow countrymen. And it was his way, I think, of just reminding us, reminding himself of who he really was. I was lost, but now I'm found. And I don't go by Matthew the tax collector anymore. I'm just Matthew, but this is who I am was now let's remember for a moment who tax collectors were in this particular system remember the nation of israel the israelites were held captive they were an occupied territory by the romans but the romans would recruit and hire native countrymen fellow jews to do the dirty work of tax collection because they could speak the language and they had the ends and the culture and all those sorts of things well, Jews hated their fellow tax-collecting Jews. They were the Benedict Arnolds of that culture, the Aldrich Ames. They were, they were the turncoats. They were the spies. They were the ones who had sold themselves and their countrymen out to these blasted Romans. They were taking taxes. They were skimming off the top. They were, they, were, they were in it for themselves. And here's what's interesting. Not only were they hated by their countrymen, the Romans, although they respected them for their skills, also disdained them as well. Now, the reason we're referring here to Matthew as a scribe, oftentimes we think of scribes as, as religious figures, but in a lot of ways, the tax collector was a secular scribe, meaning tax collectors were well-educated, they were trained, they were highly literate, they were excellent writers, they were multilingual. They were meticulous record keepers. They converse in a variety of cultures. And when you read this gospel, you will be impressed with all of those features. This is a smart man. This is a well-ordered author. This is someone who trafficked in multiple cultures. He, he was thoroughly Jewish by the way that he draws so much upon the Old Testament text. But he knows the way of Palestine and Israel. In other words, this book has all the marks of genuine apostolic authenticity. Now, you've heard me over the last couple of years mention this um, streaming series based upon the life and ministry of Jesus called The Chosen. And I'm a big Chosen fan. And it's based on the gospel accounts. But what they do is they take the artistic liberty, not to, not to make things up in terms of things that blatantly aren't true, but they, they do a little character development. In other words, they say, based upon what we know from the Gospels about Peter and James and John, here's, here's kind of the full orb of their personality. And it's interesting the way that they depict Matthew in this series. Matthew is, a, is, is actually an autistic, socially awkward dude. He, he's 
almost like an OCD savant, right? He, he's an official recorder. He writes down everything. He, he's foremost. Um, this guy who's ostracized by the culture around him. And he's go, but what, what they show is that when he becomes saved, he becomes the recorder of the disciples. In other words, he begins to write down everything that happens in the ministry of Jesus, particularly Jesus's teachings, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, when you read Matthew's gospel, and it's, it has the most volume of Jesus's teachings of any other gospel, you get the sense, whoever wrote this, was there when this happened. Now, we don't know how much of that is fact or fiction, right, in terms of the, of the series, but it simply shows us, once again, Matthew was a man. He was a person. God doesn't just magically drop down his scriptures from heaven, right? He does it through the personal agency of people, the holy men inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is what we see in this book. Now, one more thing before we leave this point. We do have to remember that Matthew didn't just suddenly decide one day he woke up and I'm going to write a gospel about Jesus. There, there was an historical context for what Matthew was doing. We think Matthew was, it was probably sometime in 50 or 60 AD. This is before the fall of Jerusalem. Matthew lives in Palestine. He is an apostolic Jew. And he is ministering to fellow Jewish Christians. But something was afoot when Matthew wrote this gospel. And what was beginning to happen? Remember, when, when, the Jew, when Jews became Christians, they didn't stop going to the temple. They didn't stop going to the synagogue. They joined their Jewish brothers and sisters and began to tell them about Jesus. They were like, the one you're looking for, waiting for, hoping for, that's Jesus. But the Jews, as they began to reject Jesus in mass, they kicked out the Jewish Christians from the synagogue. And the Jewish Christians were wondering, what is going on? Do we really have this right? Do we really understand the Old Testament? Have, have, have we pinned our hopes on the wrong Messiah? And so Matthew writes this gospel to give them assurance. Indeed, Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the one you've been looking for. By the same token, this, this is an evangelistic book. He's writing to his fellow Jews who have rejected Jesus to say, don't you see just open your Bibles, open your Old Testaments. Jesus really is the one you've been looking for. Jesus really is the one you've been longing for. There, that, that deep impulse in your heart, that gaping wound that you're seeking so much to fill, let me tell you, that person has come. You know, part of what makes the holidays, let's be honest, so nostalgic is because our, 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 heart and, and our hearts and minds being turned to the past is, is, this is really a season of longings, isn't it? Where we think about things that have gone wrong, people we don't see anymore, people we'll never see again in this world, suffering and loss. It really strikes a chord, doesn't it? it, it one of the things that we do in our house, we, 
We love, anytime we see a commercial that we really love, we're like, everybody come in here and watch this commercial, right? Nobody makes a holiday commercial like Publix, right? Can I, and if you can either decorate your tree or watch a Publix commercial without crying, I don't know if you're even a Christian, right? Let me just say that. So we're watching this Publix commercial, and this one is super poignant. I, I mean, I may get a little teary just thinking about this as I say it. But there's a young man, they show him, and he's cooking a holiday dinner. And he gets out his mom's old recipe. And his mom is there helping him every step of the way. She's saying, no, put a little more of that, a little less of that, take that out of the oven, do this, do this. It's kind of a sweet hallmark moment until you get to the end and realize mom's not there anymore. He's imagining her there with him, giving him instructions. And it really reflects something fundamental about the deepest longings of our heart. Isn't it interesting that this is universally true whether for Christians or non-Christians. There's something about this season of loss that activates the longings in our heart. And, And whether we know it or not, we are longing for something this world cannot provide. We're longing for a king. We're longing for a Messiah. We are longing for someone who will finally set things Right. What we're looking for in a word, and this brings us to our second point, is a son. And of course, not just a son, but the son. Let's look back at verse 1 just for a second. As I mentioned before, this is a banner over the entire book. This is going to cue us into what Matthew is going to write. It provides, in a sense, an outline for the rest of the book. And it's a very simple sentence. And here's what it says. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that word, book of the genealogy, the word genealogy literally means origins or beginnings or Genesis. The book of Genesis, the book of origins. It's the human history of Jesus, not that Jesus was born, but Matthew is going to tell us about the historical events that were happening when the kingdom of God through the God-man, Jesus Christ, broke into human history. Now, for the Jew, and I want you to try to get yourself back there for that moment. You've been in the mode of longing and of hoping and wondering and waiting. Where is this king? Where is this Messiah? And you, and you read Matthew's opening line here, and you're immediately going to be taken back to what? To the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And of course, that Genesis picks up the origin of human history. But every Jew knew that the story of the Old Testament was incomplete. And here's what I mean. You see, the the end of the Old Testament ends in a very ominous note. Now, in our Bibles, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, but the way that the Jews in Second Temple Judaism ordered the books, Chronicles was the last book. Chronicles was the last book. And what we find in the book of Chronicles, it ends on an ominous note, because what happens? Jeconiah who's the rightful heir to the throne, is shipped off and deposed to Babylon. 
and we never hear from him again. His line just goes dead. It is crickets at the end of the Old Testament. God has made these promises, and, and here, here's, here's the promise God had made to David and his descendants, 2 Samuel 7. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Listen to this. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was God's promise. But at the end of the Old Testament, it had not happened. Israel is exiled to Babylon they return 70 years later only to be again once again be a conquered people for the next 400 years first for the greeks then for the romans and on this is why during this intertestamental period for 400 years when jews would journey up to jerusalem and they would sing the psalms of ascent as they're coming to the to the to the temple they would cry out what how long O lord how long how much longer are we going to be under the boot of oppression? When are you going to show up? When are you going to make things right? You promise us a king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I have to just ask you, where in your life right now do you so desperately wish that a king would show, would show up and fix what is wrong? Is it a marriage? Is it a child? Is it your body? Is it a job? Is it your family? Is it just is your, your own heart? There is, in all of us, this one sense, this, this deep sense of longing, of desire for resolution. And this is what Matthew is writing into. And here's what Matthew is saying. He's here. Isn't it interesting that the book, that the Old Testament ends with that endless list of genealogies that you think is irrelevant? And where does Matthew begin his book? With a genealogy to say, you've been looking for the chosen one. His name is Jesus. And I understand he doesn't refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. No, no, no. This is Jesus the Christ. This is Jesus the Messiah. This is Jesus the anointed. The one who has come to save his people. It's Matthew's way of saying, and it would have been as obvious as the nose on your face to those who first read this, here he is. You don't have to look anymore. He's been here the whole time, right under your nose. You guys know that I'm a fan of all things fantasy and Tolkien and Lewis and everything they wrote, well, they used to, to meet in the pub over a pale ale, and they would debate, have debates about literature. This is what smart people do, apparently. And they would debate about allegory. And Lewis's position was, the more obvious the allegory, the better. It needs to be clear and simple and draw a direct line. This, you know, um, the white witch is Satan, Aslan is Jesus. You need to make it that obvious, right? Right. 
And Tolkien says, no, 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 no. I'm sure he said it in some British way. But anyway, he said, no, he was a little more subtle. It needs, it needs, to, be, it needs, it needs to be a little more obscure. And you do see this in the Fellowship of the Ring. There's a, there's a shadowy figure in the Fellowship of the Ring named Strider. And if I had another son, I would name him Strider, okay? Jack's a great name. No, 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 no problem with that, Jack, okay? But, but Strider, I think Jack and Strider would be excellent. Well, Strider's this mysterious figure. He's out of the, 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 the lands of the north. He's this ranger. And, you're, and for a long time in the story, you're like, who is this guy? What is he doing? What's he about? But slowly over time, the story is unfolded, and you realize Strider's not all he appears to be. Strider actually has a genealogy, and it traces all the way back to the king of Gondor. In fact, that's who he is, and his name is actually not Strider, it's Aragorn. He's been in hiding, and this line has been in hiding for hundreds, thousands of years, but finally he is stepping out of the shadows to take his rightful place on the throne. He's just come in an unexpected time. Isn't that the way it always is? He's come in an unexpected way. And that's what Matthew is telling us here. Matthew is cognizant that he is picking up right where the Old Testament led off. This is why the church historically has always placed the gospel of Matthew first in the New Testament canon. This was an incomplete genealogy. And Matthew's saying, you've been looking for him, but he's already here. He's the Messiah. He's from the royal line of David. And the rest of this book is going to be a testimony as to why Matthew believes this, in fact, is the Messiah of God. As I mentioned before, there, that this season, part of it, endemic to it, is, is, is longings. And sometimes, though, these longings become something more devious. Sometimes the, these longings can be replaced by bitterness or cynicism or snarkiness or skepticism. In other words, absolutely listen to your heart this season. Listen to your longings. Your longings will tell you something, right? Your longings will tell you something about your idols. They'll tell you about what your heart most deeply desires. But don't spend too much time on them. Because they can lead you to a place of unbelief and lack of faith. Which is, which is why sometimes we just have to say, give up on your pondering. Give up on your snark, your cynicism, your skepticism. Really, all that's left for you to do is to bend the knee to God and your Savior King, Lord Jesus Christ. Bow to Him. Yield your life to Him. Quit putting God on the witness stand and making accusations against Him. Yes, there's a huge hole of longing in your heart and in my heart, but God says, that's why I sent Jesus. And he hasn't just come one time, for Oaks. Please remember, he's coming back again. And he is going to make all things right. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. 
all the sad things will become unsad. I mean, th th this, is, this is real Advent hope. So don't ignore the tears. Just press into them to where they take you. So Matthew's first point in this verse, in this, verse this has to be a son of David. And that's what the, this lineage is. It's, it, it, it shows how Jesus comes from the line of David. And we're going to talk about that more specifically next week. But there's a second thing, and we're going to end with this. Not only does he have to be a son of David, which he is, Matthew says, he also has to be a son of Abraham, a Jew. Now, now what's this about? Let me read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, that's, that's standard Jewish fare, right? God's going to raise up. Someone from Abraham's line, a fellow Jew, which we know later is going to be a king, to bless the nation of Israel. Every Jew understood this, but every Jew did not understand verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because what was the one thing that just incited the enemies of God in the New Testament against the people of God. It was always when a fellow Jew would preach and teach about the inclusion of the Gentiles. That would get you run out of the synagogue. That would get you kicked out of the temple. That would get you stoned faster than anything. But what Matthew reminds us is that it's always been God's intention that through a Jewish Messiah, and make no mistake, Jesus is a Jew, but through a Jewish Messiah, not only will the nation of Israel be blessed, but the whole world will be blessed. Not just Jews that will be saved, but all kinds of people will be saved. All the nations of the world will be blessed. And as we study the Gospel of Matthew, even though it's a thoroughly Jewish book in every way, Matthew just throws these things in all, all, everywhere where you realize the gospel, though, is not just for Jews. It's, what are those Gentiles doing in this story? What are those women doing in this story? What's the slaves doing in this story? What about the Romans, the Greeks? Oh, I see. The kingdom of God is for everyone. The title of this sermon series, King and Kingdom, it forecasts these two things. That Jesus has come as the glorious king. And through his death and his resurrection, he is calling a people to himself. He is building a kingdom, an alternative kingdom for his people, which won't be fully inaugurated in this life, but when he returns, it will. And once we understand what he is up to, it changes everything. It re literally reorders our lives. So the son of Abraham, the son of David, it's not two sons, it's one his name is Jesus. And again, we ask, where in your life are you looking for salvation? If this, if this thing was just different, if this would just change, then all, all, my soul would be at rest. Because our soul is only at rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great story of Matthew. Because one of the reasons we, 
we end our services coming to the table with the bread and the wine is that we are bringing our longings to the Lord. We're saying, Lord, I am a broken person. My life is broken. My heart is broken. I'm full of sin. I'm full of doubt. I'm full of despair. Is there room in the kingdom for me? To which Jesus said, the only condition I place upon you for being part of my kingdom is knowing that you can't do it yourself. That you are freely, humbly submitting yourself to me and I will make you new. I will wash away your sins. So when we come to the table, we're not just looking back to the death of Jesus, but we're looking forward because Jesus told us to. What did Jesus tell the disciples? I won't take this meal with you again until I return in my kingdom. And that's what we're doing as the people of God, as the family of God. We're taking this meal together knowing this is the down payment, the deposit Jesus has given us. He says, do it until I come back. And once I come back, we will do it together. I'm going to ask our, our leaders to come forward and prepare to serve the Lord's Supper this morning. And I'm going to ask you just to spend a moment or two silently before the Lord, asking him to prepare your hearts as you come.